Hello and welcome to episode 132 of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and man, do I have a great doubleheader for you this week. I know I had uh, hoped to have the Uriah Heap Magicians podcast up and running this week, but we have found some ways to make it even better and it's going to be worth the wait. So I thought I would go ahead and do a double dose of Uriah Heap on the show this week in preparation for the launch of the podcast next week. And we're starting out with a bang, folks. We have very special guest this week. I'm sure you read it in the title, the one and only Ken Hensley, the original keyboard player for Uriah Heap, fantastic songwriter. His solo stuff is amazing. He's done a lot of great work over the year, been a huge personal influence, and I'm very excited to bring you my interview with him. Uh, had a little fun with the scheduling because, of course, uh, you know, I had to add a little extra challenge to it and try and schedule these interviews during the time change. And of course, not being a very worldly person. I didn't realize that we don't all change our time at the same time. Uh, I thought I had this all mapped out very well, and I ended up calling Ken, poor guy, an hour early uh, (laughs) because I didn't realize that Spain had changed their time already, and we, of course, have not. So, uh, So I was off there. Fortunately, uh, I scheduled the rest of the interviews, realizing then what uh, what the time zones changes were on the different days. So uh, I learned a valuable lesson. He was very, very uh, considerate, very nice and kind uh, about it. And, uh, you know, I'm sure this kind of stuff happens all the time. I don't know why we can't get on the same page as a world and just say, OK, this is the date we're going to change the time so that we're not little piecemeal bits here and there and then trying to communicate with each other. It doesn't make any sense. But when you look at the shape of the world, it absolutely does make sense. Uh, but I had a great conversation with Ken. I actually had, uh, back in the old days of the internet, when if you if you were around and you think about when the internet really first became a thing, and here in America, uh, in most parts of the country, we would run to a store called Best Buy and try and grab an America online CD for our six free hours of internet per week. And then we had to pay a fee on anything that was above that six hours. And if you were super lucky, you could find the eight free hours CD. So every week it was another trip down to Best Buy. And uh, yeah, we actually had limited internet back then. And if you think about where we're at now and where we came from you know, 25 years ago or however long it's been, it's, uh, it's actually pretty amazing the journey that we've taken in the digital world. Very grateful for where we are now. But when I think about where we were back then, uh, it was pretty interesting. So uh, it was fantastic to reconnect with Ken. It's been about 25 years or so and uh, had had such a good time talking to him and catching up and talking about these songs and his contributions to Uriah Heep, especially with the 50th anniversary upon us. And uh, yeah, I, I'm not even going to go into anything else. I'm just going to go straight to the interview with Ken because I'm so excited about it. You could probably hear that in my cracky little voice. But here it is, Ken Hensley. All right, ladies and gentlemen, when you think about a lot of the wonderful bands, especially bands that started around the late 60s, early 70s, and you think about some of the great keyboard players, certainly names like Keith Emerson and John Lord come to mind. But my guest today certainly stands just as tall, just as creative, and just as talented as either of those gentlemen. He is the one of the founder members of the band Uriah Heap, coming from, uh, coming from right at the point where they changed their name to Uriah Heap from Spice. And he is the one and only Ken Hensley. Ken, how are you today? 
Well, I'm super. I'm enjoying the Spanish sunshine and uh, just finished a editing session on a concert film. And um, yeah, um, I can't, I can only say that it doesn't get much better than this. <laughs> well, that's the goal, right? Having a beautiful day like that. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So I, I have so many things I want to talk to you about, but I, I want to ask you, uh, if I understand your writing process, it's a little bit different than uh, what I've heard from most people. You very rarely start with music first. You typically start with lyrics and then build around that. Yes, that's correct. I've always done that, and there's a very good reason for that. It's, well, there's two very good reasons. One is that I, was, I started life as a poet when I was very young. Uh, I, I enjoyed write, writing poetry and reading poetry, and I, I still write a lot of poetry. Um, in fact, one of the projects I'm working on right now is collating, collecting, and um, compiling a book of my poetry, which dates back to when I was 10 years old. So it's, some of it's pretty old stuff. But I think there's a place for it. And I'm um, sort of a spare time gig. You know, whenever I'm not doing something else, I just kind of shift over and start filtering my way through some of the rubbish that I wrote when I was a kid. And um, that's one reason. I've always been in love with the English language. I, I love the way you can use it in so many different ways. But in the early 70s, Scott, um, when there were no... There was no technology. There were no devices you could carry in your pocket to record things and so on and so forth. So um, I, uh, whenever I was on the road with the band, which was almost constant, whenever I had an idea for a song, I had to write it down. So I wrote the idea down, and then it went from that to becoming a song as soon as I had access to an instrument. So I could be on a plane, I could be on a, uh, in a car, uh, you know, I could be pretty much anywhere. If an idea struck, I'd write it down, but then I'd have to wait until I got to the next sound check or something like that to try to start to turn it into music. And so it became a habit. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the reason why I continue to do it to this day. And in fact, I can't do it the other way. Funnily enough. When you're putting the words together, do melodies start to form at all in your head, or is it really just a poem until you sit behind the organ? Oh, well, well uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I'll try to explain it as simply as I can. Mm -hmm. um, when I when I finish the lyric, and I will finish the lyric before I even look at the musical aspect of it, the more I read it, the more it speaks to me in terms of melody and rhythm. I believe words have both. And so I can be reading it and get the meter of it and the pace at which it wants to be read. And then um, gradually it'll turn into sounds and, and I'll then take it and sit at the piano and try to transpose what I've heard and what I've read and what I'm feeling into something more tangible as far as music is concerned. And it always works. I mean, it's, uh, it, like I said, it is a habit that I've had, but it's something I've always done. And I guess I will always do it the same way. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, especially because it developed somewhat out of circumstance, because you couldn't be in front of an instrument all the time. Um, when you're on the road, you have actually limited access to your own gear. 
Well, that's true, and we had we're moving from city to city on a regular basis. So I had more time in airplanes and cars than I did on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, <clears throat> uh, and there was absolutely no portable machinery that you could use at, at the time. So um, yeah, that was that was that was how it all came about. Well, this leads me to another question I've always had about that time in music, because as a musician these days, especially a songwriter, I feel very spoiled that I can create any sound, I can save it as a preset and recall it at any time. But when you're playing 10, 12 songs on keyboards and synthesizers, and you've got all different sounds that you have to pull up for the next song, how did you manage uh, getting the right sounds going from song to song in, in your live setting? Well, in, in, in the heat days, basically technology was still in its infancy. And so my primary instruments on stage were the B3 and uh, Minimoog. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I mastered the Minimoog completely, so it was very easy to switch from setting to setting with no problem. And the B3 was an instrument which I became hugely intimate friends with. And, you know... I discovered new ways. I mean, you, you, you mentioned some names at the beginning of this, like John Lord and Keith Emerson, and you'd throw Rick Wakeman in there and, and various other people. Whilst all those people were, were classically trained and formally educated musicians, I can't read or write a note of music. So I had no training. I don't know anything about how to do that. So everything I did, I had to make up as I went along. And in the in the process, I discovered you could use the Hammond in a lot of different ways, but it was all in front of me. You know, it wasn't like I had to reach out to modules and, you know, sub uh, menus and things like that. It was all there in front of me. I just I just learned different ways to make good use of what was there in front of me. Nowadays, when I when I play like a solo concert, for example, where it's just me on stage in front of however many people. Um, I have to make sure that I can move quickly and easily from point A to point B because I can't be sitting there in front of all these people playing around with menus and submenus. And, you know, some of the modern keyboards are so wonderful, but they're so complicated. I typically use an outdated Roland RD 700 or 800 um, because everything's on the surface. And the most important, the most important button for me is the transpose button. Oh, so sure. it's right there in front of me. Very, very easy to use. <laughs> so um, you know that, and plus I carry two acoustic guitars with me, one, one slightly different tunings, and that's all I need to do a, a solo show. But you're right. I mean, I never mastered the technology uh, of the larger Moogs or any of the Oberheim simulators or. And I must have tried every single Hammond synthesizer simulator in the world because companies kept sending them to me to try and, and try to persuade me that this was it, this was the real thing. I didn't have to carry around 220 kilos of wood anymore. And it was never right. It was never the same because the sound of a Hammond and a Leslie depends on so many organic things and so many things that you simply can't formulate. Like the movement of air mm-hmm. and, the, and and the rat, the rattling of, of wood that's worn. You know, I mean, all these things are part of the sound of a Hammond Leslie, 
and you can't you just cannot synthesize that so anyway I, I've seen some that, that are, are fairly nice, but I've never really found one myself that I thought, wow, this just, this is it. This just nailed it. But you're right. There's just too many factors. But if you want to talk about mastering the Hammond organ, if anybody wants to know what the sound of somebody mastering a Hammond organ is, just listen to the song Salisbury, because you have such <laughs> control over that instrument when it needs to be quiet it's nice and gentle in the background but when you when you bring out those powerful swells it's just it's a beast <laughs> yep it certainly is and and it's capable of doing a lot of things that most people don't realize uh and um you know i can't talk about it i can't describe it verbally but you know if we were sitting around a hammered organ I'm sure I could show you things that I do with a Hammond, which you would be spellbound by because you don't look at the instrument and imagine it can even do these things. And it's really just a combination of having a great instrument that's in great condition uh, and, and stock, no, no additional add-ons or anything like that. Um, but then it's a combination of using the draw bars and the volume control and so on, and the speed control of the Leslie also, and you, you set them into different combinations, and you just an unlimited um, supply of of incredible sounds available. So, but if people just want to play it in the authentic kind of formal way, well, that's fine. It'll always sound good. But we come back to the beginning of our conversation, Scott. I mean, is that enough? Right. You know. Is that enough or can I, let me see what else I might be able to pull out of this thing. And, you know, if you communicate with the instrument well enough, then, you know, it will partner with you in this little adventure and show you that, yes, indeed, there is a lot of other stuff in there that you can do. Absolutely. And for an instrument that was really just considered a blues organ, it's amazing what rock and roll musicians have done with it. Yourself and John Lord especially uh, have really brought out so many, excuse me, <clears throat> wow, uh, have really brought out so many dynamics in the instrument that I, I would have never thought that possible. I probably, when I was young, would have just seen that as a, as a, as a more of a church organ. But uh, you guys have really created a, a masterful instrument with it, for sure. Well, it certainly wasn't designed to do the things that I do with it. I mean, it was designed, <laughs> you're correct. Uh, the C3 was a church version. The B3 was the home version. And they're electronically identical. Um, but you know, not every instrument that Hammond made was exactly the same as, uh, as the one before it. I mean, they, they varied so much because it's old clock technology and, uh, it's so voltage dependent, um, that, you know, you can get one that sounds fantastic and another one that sounds really mediocre. So, um, fortunately I, I have a absolutely beautiful one at home which um, I would rather use it than use a rented one in a, in a recording or show situation because I know I can count on my, my Hammond. Right. And that's, that's so important, especially when you're on the road so much. But that actually leads me to another question. We had talked uh, before we started recording, we were talking about the fact that Roger Glover from Deep Purple was the one that had re- recommended John Lawton to replace David Byron because he'd worked with him on the Butterfly Ball. When you guys were you guys were all on the road all the time, how did you find each other to even be able to connect? Hmm. Well, 
our, our paths did cross from time to time. We did lots of shows in the States with Deep Purple, and a, fair, a typical early 70s festival would involve, you know, Uriah Heep, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Moody Blues, Led Zeppelin, uh, or any variation on that particular theme. And so we were always kind of in each other's company. And, um, you know, we knew how to connect and contact one another. It wasn't as easy as it is now, of course, but we knew how to do it then in the old-fashioned way. And um, um, I think it all comes down to the fact that, as I mentioned to you before, there was a tremendous camaraderie between us. There was Obviously, there was competition. You know, we were all fiercely competing for the same concert ticket, the same record sale and everything else. So there was definitely co- competitive issues there. But what came first was our partnership in making this discovery that we were sharing into what it could really be. And, and uh, the sense of wonder, the sense of awe, the sense of passion, the sense of commitment was something that we all shared. That there was nothing, there were no obstacles in the way of that. There was no ego and, you know, the competitive side of it was great. It was great. You know, it just, we pushed each other and, you know, we would go on before Deep Purple and Deep Purple would know that they needed to be on their toes to to get it right and vice versa, you know. And, and so it, it, it was healthy competition, Scott. No question about that. Oh, sure. And and really, the fans benefited from that because they saw two bands pushing each other to be at the top of their game all the time. Absolutely. At least two bands doing that. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, in a festival situation, you'd see all of those bands individually pushing each other. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the night, you'd see them all on stage at the same time, jamming and having having just a great time. So, yeah, you're right. The fans, who are the important people in, in this equation, uh, they did get the best of it, and they deserve the best of it. They're the ones that made it possible. Sure. Now, in the beginning, uh, was The Gods your first major band? Yeah. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of the fact that, yeah, with The Gods, uh, I had my first record contract with EMI, made the first two albums with them in 66 and 67 at Abbey Road. And so, yeah, I would say in terms of using the word major, yes, that was my first real professional opportunity. Unfortunately, it didn't amount to a lot because I think we were just a bit ahead of our time. Oh, Well, the good thing, though, is that you connected with guys like Paul Newton and Lee Kerslake and Greg Lake, which obviously I would imagine led to your entry into your eye heap. Yes, knowing Paul, um, uh, having worked with him, uh, it meant when when Spice, which Paul was in uh, the bass player for, um, when they started looking for, they made a decision to find a keyboard player who immediately recommended me. So yeah, he did kind of shoehorn me into that situation. Um, but you know, again, I don't call it luck; I call it providence. And you know, these things happen for, happen for a reason. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it was through Paul and his recommendation that I got the gig with Spice. And it was because Spice evolved so rapidly that it became your idea. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's really amazing how those relationships, but that it, it's, it shows that they like you on a personal level. 
that they like you on a professional level, that they think that your chops are good enough to enter this this next phase. And it's really a compliment when somebody says, hey, I think this is the guy. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and Paul obviously didn't have any hesitation and they didn't look elsewhere. I mean, they just assumed they came, brought them all to a show. They liked what they saw and what they heard. And I went for the interview with management in central London and the deal was done. And I was suddenly elevated into a situation where I was working with a band that had management that was being paid a small but very useful salary. Uh, had a recording contract and was already in the studio starting work on their first album. So this, these were giant steps forward. For sure. And, uh, and obviously, you know, you made some great connections through that that led to things in the future, and you would continue to work with John Lawton on some other projects as well. Um, I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. I did Beyond Your I Hate, you mean? Yeah, wasn't there a, a, a band that you two formed together, or maybe that was just a performance? Uh, no, that was just a, uh, uh, a band. It was John's band, mm-hmm. but we just used it to promote one album that we did together, yeah. Okay. But that, that, didn't, last very, that didn't last very long because John fired me, so... Um, <laughs> Uh, and just purely in retribution for me getting him fired from Uriah Heap. So I, it was a thing of nothing to me because, uh, you know, it, it didn't matter to me at all. The, the project itself was dead in the water anyway. And, and so for me, the prospect of just going home was great. Sure. And uh, you, you selected Ian Pace to play on one of your albums. Actually, yeah, I, I did. It was kind of a, a, a deal. I had a studio out and I lived out in the country in the rock and roll retirement belt. Uh, Pacey lived out there, uh, Kenny Jones, Mick Ralphs, uh, Simon Kirk, um, let's see who else, Alvin Lee. And they were forever at my studio because I always had two barrels of the best local independent beer you could find. <laughs> and, you know, they'd come over and, you know, say, yeah, well, Joe, let's play on a track or something. Yeah, that's fine. And then, uh, then they'd disappear, but I knew where they were. <laughs> Boz and Mick would be round, round the corner just filling up their glasses from my beer barrels. <laughs> but we had such a wonderful we had such a wonderful time out there. And I made a deal with um, Mick and Simon and Boz if... Uh, if... Um, if they were playing some tracks of a solo album I was working on, then they could record their demos, their new album demos in my studio for nothing. Oh, that's fair. So it was a, it was a nice it was a nice trade off, and we had a lot of fun in the process. Again, it was largely innocent fun, and uh, you know, I mean, just great names, great players, and great people. So again, it's a time that can't be replicated. Yeah. Well, I don't you think that that makes for some of the best music, though, when it's not, we have to release an album, we have to release a single, the record company is pressing us. It's just, hey, we're all here, let's just make some music and record it. Yeah, either that, or let's go out on our trail bikes and break our bones, or <laughs> sit down and throw food at each other. I mean, <laughs> those were our options. So sometimes we chose music, and sometimes we chose one of the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame you couldn't record the food fights. 
Well, no, we couldn't. Uh, didn't have any portable video cameras, but it's it's very clearly embedded in my brain. I can still remember it. And probably still on some of the walls. Oh, it could, it could well be. <laughs> I don't know, but, you know, it, the prospect of those kinds of memories, the, the, the very idea of those kinds of memories still being stuck to a wall somewhere, I like the idea. I like it. I think it's great. A little bit of history, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what the time frame of this is, so I'm not sure if you were in Uriah Heap when this happened, but were you there when David Coverdale auditioned? Yes, I was. Of course I was. Yeah, we were trying to replace uh, John Lawton. Okay, so it was that time. I know, we're trying, to replace David, we're trying to replace David Byron, yeah. Oh, so that was before Lawton. Okay. Do, do you have any memories of that audition? I have one very clear memory, uh, and that is that David had become an alcoholic, right? David Byron. And, um, you know, his, he had a beautiful, he was married to a beautiful German girl who tried for all she was worth to get him to clean up his act and everything else. And I mean, I know Garvey, I still know Garvey from, from those days and from now. Um, and, you know, we spent time together and, and talked about it quite a lot. Um, but we, David had reached a point of no return. I mean, we had to ask him to leave because he was so out of control with the alcohol. And so we said goodbye to David, an alcoholic with a beautiful German girlfriend, wife. Mm. And in the course of our trying to replace David, which we obviously couldn't do, but I didn't realize that at the time, um, we invited David Coverdale to come down to the rehearsal room and, and jam and see if there was anything there. So having just got rid of a an alcoholic singer with a, a German wife, in walks David Coverdale with his German girlfriend and a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand. <laughs> oh, man. So, so this, is, this is definitely, that's not to imply or suggest or even say that David Coverdale was in any way an alcoholic. I don't know. I never got to know him that well. But it, it just didn't work. I mean, it was just a mismatch from start to finish. I mean, uh, David was a rocker in a different style and a uh, great guy. And we laughed and we giggled a lot, but we all knew it wasn't going to work. Yeah, it, it would have been interesting, I think, to hear him sing some of those classic Heap songs and see how his writing progressed with the band. But if you just know it's not going to work, the creativity is never going to be there. Well, no, I mean, it, it, it's I, I think that, you know, any good quality singer who's committed to being the best he can be could, could have found a home in Uriah Heap. Mm-hmm. given time to adapt and everything else. But when somebody's so deeply rooted in a very specific style of music and singing and writing and everything else, it's really asking a lot of that person to let all that go and play by somebody else's rules. That's very fair. And uh, I, I, for one, didn't want to do that. I would rather have found somebody with no track record but a great voice who could be coached from the ground up. Mm-hmm. That's what I was hoping we would find. Yeah, well, that certainly makes sense. Um, I have a couple more questions for you. Um, one of your solo songs that I have just, from the first time I heard it, I loved, 
And it's actually the only song I've ever been able to play on piano and sing at the same time. I can't do it anymore, but it's the only one I've ever been able to do it with, would be a song called Cold Autumn Sunday. Uh, just a, a beautiful song okay. from beginning to end. Do you, when I say that title, does that bring up any any thoughts or feelings for you? Yeah, it brings up uh, very early in, in my writing life. And, you know, writing for me is a constant learning process, Scott. It still is and it always was. It's become more of an adventure now than, than it was then because I really wanted to uh, write a certain way and a certain style. And I was you know, writing a lot for David and everything I wrote had David's phrasing and, and so on in mind. But Cold Autumn Sunday was one of a batch of songs that I wrote that the band turned down. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly to this day why they turned it down, but I, I always knew that it was my first venture into uh, trying to paint a picture with words. And, you know, at the very beginning of the song where it talks, when the um, blah, blah, blah. Uh, when the leaving birds. I, I forget yeah, feel the strong gray sky and blah, 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 blah. This is all imagery, which I was only beginning to dabble with at the time. I mean, the master of imagery is the great, late, great Leonard Cohen, of course, my favorite songwriter of, of all time, who could paint such glorious pictures with words that it was beyond my imagination. But this imagery was something I was just starting to get into. And, um, and so I felt the song was... Uh, strong from that point of view and it, be, it it became, the song became its own story. There was no frame of reference. There was no, it was nothing happening in my life that would inspire the lyric and nothing that was happening in anybody else's life that I knew that would have inspired the lyric. It all came from my imagination um, but, but the imagery thing was just something very, very new. Do you feel sometimes like I do when I'm writing that you're more of a vessel that somebody else is actually like, I can't do this. I'm, I physically, I'm going to use you to do it. And you're, you're just sort of the conduit for the song. Absolutely. I feel like that all the time. I mean, you know, a, a lady, an old lady I knew said it far better than me. She said, um, God is the creator. You're just his scratchy pen. <laughs> I like that. I, like I do too. And I said, you know what? I, I'm perfectly cool with that. That's fine with me because there's no reason on earth, Scott, why I as a human being who lives and breathes in exactly the same way that you do, why I should be capable of doing what I've done more so than you, other than the fact that, you know, I was chosen to do this. This was the gift that was given to me in the job and the task that was given to me when I was put on the face of this earth. Mm-hmm. And I rather like to look at it that way. And so when I wake up in the morning, I have a goal every morning to make sure that everything I do, I do led by um, God's will and not by my own or by anybody else's. And um, this for me is a very pure desire. And it's also something that stimulates me in the morning. And it doesn't matter whether I'm feeding the cats preparing the chicken's food or uh, cleaning up after the dogs, writing a song, playing the piano, 
or whatever I'm doing, I'm very comfortable doing it and doing it the best I can, knowing that that's what I'm supposed to be doing at that particular moment in time. Well, I, I really like that perspective. I'm not, I'm not in any way superior or anything. I'm just a guy like everybody else. It was just I was given a different gig, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's I mean, all I can do. Some people were meant to be engineers. Some people were meant to be politicians. Some people were meant for different things. But you, you're doing what feels right for you. And I think it definitely shows in the music. As I think about, I, I'm sitting here looking at your uh, picture that you sent me many years ago uh, that's titled Ken Hensley and your band Visible Faith. And I think of all the different things that you've done over the years. And I can't say I've ever heard you do anything that I didn't feel you were passionate about. Well, that's good to know because uh, I don't ever want to do that. I mean, I always want to be 100% committed to whatever it is I'm doing at whatever point in time it is. Uh, And so I try strenuously to actually avoid um, getting into things which um, I know I shouldn't. You know, I'm asked very, I'm asked frequently to play on other people's recordings and everything else. And I used to do it a lot. Now I'm extremely picky about what I play on and don't play on because um, I, I get no satisfaction whatsoever from just playing on something because someone offers me a couple of grand to do it. Right. Well, yeah, there's no connection there. Well, Ken, uh, before we go, I just want to ask you, you know, you've got, you, you mentioned earlier the video that you're editing and I know that, you know, nobody's touring right now, but what are, what are you up to these days? Do you have a, a project in the works? Oh, I'm more than one. I mean, I've, I finished, I took three years and wrote a rock opera called Born to Rock, which when, whenever the virus gives us a break, it will be a stage musical plus also a live music rock opera. Uh, it was about to do that when the virus struck and we had to put all the plans on one side. Um, last year in September, I finished an, a new album, which I recorded with Richard Evans, one of Peter Gabriel's key team players, great producer, great engineer. And his partner, Dean Brockhurst, who's a genius string arranger and pianist, uh, we put together an album which is called A Little Closer. And um, this will be released probably third or fourth quarter next year because between the 50th anniversary box set and A Little Closer is an album I recorded um, mainly uh, under lockdown. And, and almost entirely by internet. And um, it's an album I wrote in collaboration with a, a Russian a friend of mine who's a poet. And um, he would send me the Russian lyrics with a sort of a rough English translation, which I would then massage into a song format and, and create music for. We ended up making an album, which was going to be released on Cherry Red, on the 26th of February. So yeah, that plus I'm compiling my poetry book and um, the film I was talking about is a, we put together a live performance of the nine songs on this new album and um, recorded it socially distanced 
at an auditorium not too far from where I live in Spain. And so now we're working on editing it and piecing it all together. And we did something else that's a little unique. No, it's not. It's a big unique. <laughs> we made a video. We made a video clip for every song on the album. Ah, that is. <laughs> and so we're feeding the label with all kinds of stuff. Where if, if they don't make it <laughs> a success out of it, they will have no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, these these are a lot of wonderful things that we can all look forward to. And, you know, Ken, I, I just can't uh, thank you enough for taking some time to chat with me. You know, as, as we talked about before we started recording, uh, you've had a profound influence on me as, as both a fan of music and as a musician myself. And uh, I definitely appreciate the, the work that you've put into your passion and uh, putting it out there for the rest of us to enjoy. So on, on behalf of everyone, thank you so much. My joy is in sharing, Scott. I mean, nothing that I have, whether it's experience or music or songs or anything, would be worth anything if I couldn't share it. So, you know, on behalf of myself, I would thank you and everybody else that's made my career possible because you are the ones that, you know, I got to share it with and... The fulfillment in that is beyond description. I, I don't have words to describe it. So thank you and thank everybody listening and anybody and everybody that picks up the message that I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful. Well, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Thank you, Ken. And definitely come back and see us again. Well, I'd love to. Um, I just want this. Um, although in, in 2019, I did fly a lot too much. Um, and I found out that, you know, my body's changing a bit, so I better take it easy. Yeah. So this year, I haven't had to go to the I haven't had to go to the airport once, except to pick up a friend who flew in for my birthday. Um, I can't fly because um, the virus won't let me. Um, I can't go home to see my family. I couldn't even go to Lee's funeral oh. um, a few weeks ago because um, if I fly to England, I have to go into quarantine for two weeks, and I'm not doing that. And the other issue is, you know, yes, I'll wear a mask when I go to the shops uh, or when I'm in a, a social situation where it makes sense to wear a mask. But wearing a mask on a three or four or five hour flight, I can't imagine that. I just can't imagine that at all. Yeah, I, I'm so I'm just that. happy. To, I'm happy, happy to wait until they come up with something a little bit more permanent. And then we'll see where we all go from there. But uh, at the moment, I may well have played my last concert. I don't know. If I have, or so be it. I've played enough concerts in my life. <laughs> yes, you have. Yes, you I, have. I won't miss one more. So. Right. <laughs> but uh, we'll just, we, it's like everything else, Scott. We just all have to be patient, be sensible, be safe. Don't put ourselves in harm's way and just wait until this all dies down and, and somebody gets it under control. And hopefully that won't be too much longer. That's right. Well, you, you continue to take care of yourself, stay safe, and just keep, keep those creative juices flowing because no matter what the situation is, we can always create. That's true. As long as I stay in my little room and, and don't venture into any dangerous situations, mm -hmm. I'll be in there with my piano and my guitar and I'll be continuing the adventure. Excellent. Well, thank you, my friend. You take care of yourself. We'll talk again. All right. Thanks, Scott. Take care, man. You too. Bye now. 
It's amazing how much work somebody can do in their lifetime, but when you work as hard as he does, just every day focused on the goal, I mean, I'm sure he does other things as well, but that that's how you get results is to just be focused, stay on it. With creatives, it's a little tough because not every day are we going to be in the zone, but if you look at, at his body of work and listen to it, really listen to his solo stuff too, because it's absolutely amazing. Uh, it, it just uh, hats off because I, I love people that are just into getting things done and doing them so well. Thank you guys for joining me on this very special episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. Stay tuned for part two of this week's doubleheader. header.